Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Bucko Booth. My name is Benson Sector, and I'll be the host of your show this morning. Jared was supposed to join us, and he still uh, might be joining us later in the episode, but we will be riding solo today. Uh, an interesting week in Pirates baseball, not not much that has happened. A couple minor moves, including the signing of catcher Stephen Barron uh, to shore up a potential uh, Cervelli trade to have some backup there. Uh, there have been some rumors floating around. Uh, we officially signed Jordan Lyles. But overall, it's been a quite the quiet week following the winter meetings, and that's usually what tends to be the case. Um, and it tends to be the case of the Pirates offseason in general. They're not a team that goes out and makes many moves, and they're not a team that has many rumors. And if there are rumors, they're usually substantiated. But we have a lot of talk to talk about this morning. And first, I want to get into the mailbag questions that you guys submitted. I'm only going to take two this morning. First one is from Brandon. What moves can the Pirates make to keep up? So we all know that the Reds made the trade yesterday to acquire Yasiel Puig, Matt Kemp, Alex Wood, and Buck Farmer from the Dodgers for Homer Bailey prospects and some cash. Now, the Reds, I believe, clearly won that trade, and it just makes the division that much tougher. But here's the thing. I know they did get Tanner Roark, but the Reds are not going to be able to compete unless they improve that pitching staff drastically. They've always had a dominant offense. Uh, I'm not sure we have to worry too much about that. And as I always say, good pitching beats good hitting. The Pirates have one of the best pitching staffs in baseball. They will definitely be able to keep down that offense as we head in there for opening day on March the 28th. Uh, it will be interesting to see Yasiel Puig in the you know the Reds' uh, colors, but uh, overall, it's not going to affect us that much. Uh, we just need to make minor moves to improve and get that one extra one a month to make the postseason in 2019. Our next question and our last question comes from Vincent Jude. He asks, latest rumors on Tulo. We're actually going to get to this a little bit later in the show, Vincent. But essentially, uh, Tulowitzki worked out for MLB clubs this past week. Uh, and apparently, he looks really good. Pirates are the reported front runners for him according to John Hammond and a couple of other sources. But really not much movement on this. I wouldn't expect a too low signing until the new year as, you know, it's Christmas time coming up. And I assume Troy Tulewitzki will be with his families and the Pirates front office will be closing on uh, tomorrow, actually, until Wednesday. So I wouldn't expect any moves until the new year on Tulewitzki, but he'd be a great fit in Pittsburgh. Uh, my number one option, preferably, is Jose Iglesias believe I'd say Freddie Galvis then too low, but I'd love any of them in Pittsburgh. They're an upgrade over our current Kevin Newman, Eric and Saul situation that we are stuck in right now. Thank you for submitting your mailbag questions this week. To submit them, uh, we post them on our Instagram story at Bucks Dugout and at Baseball Podcast Net. Just type it in the, uh, the questions part on our story and you can be featured on our mailbag. All right. So I want to talk a little about uh, our main topic today. If you saw the you know, the title in our image that we put out. And players, they are acquired based on what teams expect them to do going forward. Each player has a projection, but their true talent isn't known, and they'll fall somewhere within a distribution, which comes with risk. Neil Huntington has been risk-averse in his tenure as the Pittsburgh Pirates general manager. He's rarely traded big-time prospects, with the move for Chris Archer being uncharacteristic. And he's not been able to reach the finish line 
and other big names such as John Lester, David Price, or uh, Jose Quintana. He's brought in big names such as Francisco Liriano, a former top 10 prospect. A.J. Burnett signed a three-year deal worth $28.6 million before 2006 with the Blue Jays, and a five-year deal worth $82.5 million before 2009 with the New York Yankees. Those two names were just names, though, as their value was diminished for various reasons. Liriano never lived up to the hype in third-place finish and AL Rookie of the Year voting in 2006, posting a 5.09 and 5.43 ERA the two years before joining the Pirates. And he also had Tommy John surgery after the 2006 season. And after breaking his arm and revising the deal, the Southpaw received a $1 million in 2013 and $6 million in 2014, with the latter being an option. There was minimal risk, just a $1 million, with the Pirates being on the upside of the Francisco Liriano risk. In Burnett, the Yankees paid down $11.5 million in 2012 and $8.5 million in 2013, with the Pirates paying just $5 million and $8 million in those years. Burnett pitched to a 5.26 ERA and a 5.15 ERA in his final two years in the Bronx. There was less value that Burnett needed to provide to make the salary worthwhile given the amount the club was actually paying him. Reminiscent to the scene in Moneyball with David Justice, where Billy Bean mentions how the Yankees are paying for him to play against them. The projection system steamer projected a 4.08 ERA for Burnett in 2012 and a 3.88 ERA for Liriano in 2013. Both pitchers were better than their projection, but given those figures and lesser salary commitments, Burnett also cost a little in acquisition costs with respect to prospects. The Pirates were willing to take the risk. This is relevant as the Pirates look into acquiring a shortstop. Risk management is part of the decisions a front office makes when looking at potential upgrades to the free agent or trade markets, both in dollar and player costs, similar to when the Pirates traded for Burnett and signed Liriano. For the sake of standardization, player value will be with respect to F-War per 600 point appearances, and the four players and their value are totally made-up numbers and not real. Let's call these four players KN27, a rookie shortstop, NA13, a trade target, FG13, a free agent, and TT2, an often injured former star who was released and his former team owes him a lot of money over the next two years. These four players project at 1.22, 1.15, 0.29, and 2.23 F war per 600, respectively. But projections aren't perfectly accurate, as a player can fall anywhere above and below those figures in a given year through variation, improvement in the offseason, change in their talent level, etc. For ease, assume that the first three players, KN27, NA13, and FG13, talent level, is normally distributed or that the value they are projected for falls 68% in one standard deviation, 95% in two standard deviations, and 99.7% and three standard deviations. It wouldn't be too surprising if, say, KN27, mean projection of 1.22, produced a 2.0 F4 per 600 season, if a standard deviation and projected talent was 0.75. 68% of the time, KN27 produces a F4 per 600 between 0.47 and 1.97. 
95% between negative 0.28 and 2.72, and 99.7% between negative 1.03 and 3.47. KN27 has a standard deviation of 0.75 because of his youth and being a rookie, making him a more risky player than a veteran in terms of projected value. For this exercise, NA13 and FG13 have standard deviations of 0.5 as both are glove first. Bat distant second veterans who are likely to not vary from their projected value. On the other hand, TT2 is often injured and because of this, he prevents more risk, but also more upside. His talent is not normally distributed. Rather, the log of his talent is distributed normally, so log normal distribution. This distribution can't call negative values, but it's not normally distributed around the mean. In this instance, due to the health risks in TT2, the standard deviation is 1.0, as there's a good chance he won't be healthy. And if he is, the talent is there to overperform the projection. Running a random number generator for the four players with their respective distributions, mean projections, and standard deviation 5,000 times, the values generated approximately are what to expect. So for TT2, his mean is 2.24, standard deviation of 1.04. KN27 mean of 1.22, standard deviation of 0.75. NA13 mean of 1.15. And FG13 a mean of 0.3, standard deviation of 0.51. But it's hard to visually interpret what that looks like. Graphing a density plot of the 5,000 random values looks something like this. So looking at the graph, FG13 and NA13 have the most narrow distributions, lowest standard deviations of the four. TT2 is skewed right, uh, medium F4 of 600 of 2.05, and he brings more risk, but he is also the most likely to produce a 3.0 plus F4 per, per 600 season, though getting their hinges on him being healthy, which this theoretical player hasn't been throughout his kurtosis, measures the distribution, and excess kurtosis of 0.0 is a normal distribution. Greater than 0.0, the distribution has more in the tails, and less than 0.0, the distribution has less in the tails. The values are KN27, 0.09, NA13, 0.01, FG13, 0.11, and TT2, 3.05. The first three players have normal distributions, and TT2 has more in the tails, verifying the random number generator worked. Based on the means and standard deviations, numbers used as illustration purposes, KN27 and NA13 are the safest options, and KN27 doesn't have an acquisition cost like NA13 does. It isn't unreasonable that either player has a 2.0 F4 per 600 season, and the financial cost on both is minimal. TT2 provides the most upside and also comes at a low financial cost, but he's often hurt, a part that has been ignored throughout this segment. This is just the beginning of what evaluating what risk looks like, just based on the distributions of projected value over 600 plate appearances. Projecting the probability of injury and what that does to the value in TT2's case, the risk of injury is high, making the player more risky. The cost of depth, especially in TT2's case, etc., 
are all part of the process the front office must go through when evaluating which players best fit their club based on the 25-man, 40-man, and budget constraints. Projections are great, but there's a distribution players fall on, and there's risk associated with each player as well. And that's an important concept which too often gets ignored. It's exactly what Neil Huntington goes through with his front office, what we, what we just went through. Yes, numbers may, be, may have been tough to understand. Uh, you may not be used to the numbers. But that is exactly what Neil Huntington and his guys go through, and we just simulated it with our guys, Kevin Newman, Nick Ahmed, Freddie Galvis, and Troy Tulowitzki. Now, we're going to get back to Vincent's question about Tulowitzki. And the Pittsburgh Pirates, are one of 11 teams interested in a former all-star shortstop. Here's an update on the potential move. The most popular rumor surrounding the Pittsburgh Pirates this offseason has been their interest in adding a shortstop. The first rumor was that the Bucks called the Arizona Diamondbacks in regards to 2008 Gold Glove winner Nick Ahmed. Then this past weekend, it was reported that the team had Galvis. The most recent rumor and most talked about one has been the emergence of potentially adding Troy Tulowitzki. Tula, of course, was let go by the Toronto Blue Jays last week, and it was immediately connected that the Pittsburgh Pirates would have interest. It makes sense as uh, the team needs a shortstop, and Tulowitzki will not earn any more than the league minimum due to him by the Toronto Blue Jays. So obviously, with the need and cheap salary, it would be a very good fit for the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Pirates were one of a teams Japan Tulowitzki showcase last week. Meanwhile, for Tulowitzki, the Pittsburgh Pirates would make a lot of sense. First off, they can offer him a chance to play as an everyday shortstop. Not a lot of teams can offer that at this point. This will allow him to prove he is healthy and potentially rebuild his value for the future. Second, the Pittsburgh Pirates had a winning season last year with a very young core. The team could be potentially better next season, and adding Tulo could make them a legitimate playoff contender, something that should interest Tulo. The last reason is that the veteran shortstop played for a lot of years under Clint Hurdle. The last reason is a focus here. Tulowitzki had some of his best seasons playing for Clint Hurdle. The sense of familiarity between the two could allow Tulo to flourish once again. However, there is speculation floating around that Hurdle and Tulowitzki did not always get along in Colorado. Apparently, Tulo was frustrated that Hurdle benched him for doing things that other players were doing, such as swinging out of the first pitch, a report from 2009. While this likely happened, does this describe their relationship? Not according to John Heyman of FanCred. Heyman believes the Pittsburgh Pirates are one of the top favorites to sign Tulowitzki. Why? He spoke about Hurdle's relationship with Tulo in his most recent notes. Quote, The Pirates could have a decent shot at Troy Tulowitzki. Afrin made a chance to start at his preferred shortstop. Clint Hurdle loves Tulo from their days together in Colorado. Of course, they were at a showcase, end quote. So what they need to remember is that not everything is perfect. It's very likely that if you walked into the Pittsburgh Pirates clubhouse and asked players off the record if they have ever not seen eye-to-eye with Hurdle, they probably could recall a few instances. It is only natural that people will have disagreements at one point or another especially when talking about high-profile players and their managers. Other than that, Heyman's notes are not all that revealing. He does not say anything in terms of how interested the Pittsburgh Pirates are or how interested Tulo might be in the Bucks. Still, he mentions that Hurdle loves Tulo. 
This could factor into a potential deal if Hurdle pushes hard to recruit Tulo to be a part of the Pittsburgh Pirates in 2019. Now, in John Heyman's notes, again, just going back to Vincent's question, it doesn't answer, you know, the update. Pretty much the only update is that Hurdle loves Tulo. That was, you know, expected. We all expected that Hurdle would love him. I mean, when he's hitting, uh, batting over 300, hitting 25-plus home runs and driving in 100 RBIs for you in Colorado and taking you to the World Series in 2008, how could you not love him? I, I've been very clear about my preferred shortstop target for the Pittsburgh Pirates since about day one. I wanted us to be, bring back Jordy Mercer. That did not happen. He signed with the Detroit Tigers. Now, I want us to do a swap here. I want us to sign Jose Iglesias. That has been number one on my wish list. The entire offseason, followed by Gio Gonzalez. Now, there have been reports, really no reports on Jose Iglesias, which has been surprising for me. The reports have been around Nick Ahmed, Freddie Galvis, and Troy Tulowitzki. Now, out of those three, Troy Tulowitzki is the biggest name brand. He is a five-time All-Star. If he can get back to that point, he can be very good for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And, you know, the uh, distribution that we did talking about, you know, who's the most risky, who's not. Troy Tulowitzki is obviously the most risky player to sign. I mean, we looked at the standard deviation, and it was large. You get guys like Freddie Galvis and Nick Allman, you know what they're going to give you. They're glove first, bat second, veteran shortstops. And then you have a bit of a risk in potentially going with and keeping Kevin Newman. If you keep Kevin Newman, there is risk in there as well. But he does have potential. And again, Neil Huntington needs to weigh the risk, go through the distribution, and see what makes sense numbers-wise, baseball-wise, who Clint Hurdle wants. And, you know, we're, I believe that we're going to bring in a shortstop before spring training. There's going to be a shortstop, a new one, on the Pittsburgh Pirates within the next 63 days. That I can almost say as fact. The only way I believe Kevin Newman or Eric Gonzalez are the starting shortstops on March 28th, 2019, are if that new guy gets hurt. Let's say we bring Tula, he gets hurt. Newman or Gonzalez would battle for that opening a shortstop role on March 28th when we head to Cincinnati. Now, the question is, out of those three, Ahmed, Tulo, Gallus, who are we most likely to get? I'd probably stray away from Ahmed because we're going to have to give up something for him. I'd put him as third least likely. I would then probably say Galvis 2, Tulo 1. And the reason why I'm saying that is because the Pirates are notorious for bringing in guys that may have been hurt, banged up, washed up, whatever, bringing them in, salvaging them, and then getting back to what they used to be and then moving on. I believe that can definitely happen with Troy Tulowitzki. If we bring him in as a stopgap to Cole Tucker for 2020, I believe Cole Tucker will be the shortstop in 2020. You bring Tulu in on a one-year deal, 550000 doesn't cost you anything. Worst-case scenario, you have to go to Newman or Gonzalez. Had a bad scenario? Depends how they perform. We still haven't seen Eric Gonzalez, and now he's going to perform in a Pirates uniform. We did see a little bit of Kevin Newman. He didn't show us much. He struck out a lot, barely hit. His glove was shaky. Could he be the opening? Day, could he be the opening day shortstop? I'd stray away from that, but it really all comes down to Neil Huntington and his decision on the shortstop market. What does he want to do? Where does he want to go? Who does he want to sign? And then Hurdle, if he does decide to recruit to Lewinsky, 
I believe he might get him because, you know, the general manager and the manager work closely together. At the end of the day, I don't expect anything to get done between now and uh, the new year. But just as Machado is making his decision after the new year, uh, the market will pick up after that, and we will see what goes down. All right, so I want to talk a little bit about some numbers and which Pittsburgh Pirates players will be rocking new numbers during the 2019 season. One of the main and easiest ways that people identify professional athletes is by the number they wear on the back of their jerseys. In fact, some athletes are known simply by their jersey number. When looking at the Pittsburgh Pirates' official website, their roster has been updated. The roster update includes new jersey numbers. This includes both players changing their numbers as well as what new number what new number new players added during this offseason will wear in 2019. We'll start with the newly added players. The first move the Pirates made this offseason was swinging a five-player trade with the Cleveland Indians. In this trade, the Pirates added one major league player, utility man Eric Gonzalez. We know that Gonzalez will wear number two for the Pirates in 2019. After adding Gonzalez, the team added another ex-Indian. This time, however, the addition came via free agency. Outfielder Lonnie Chisenhall, uh, was signed to a one-year contract to play right field until Gregory Polanco is healthy, signing to the one-year deal before transitioning to the fourth outsider role. During the 2019 season, Chisnall will rock number 17 for the Bucks. At last week's MLB winter meetings, the Pirates traded away starting pitcher Von Nova. A few hours later, they signed pitcher Jordan Lyles. Lyles, who would compete for the spot in the starting rotation in 2019, will wear number 31. When it comes to players changing their numbers from 2018, there is only one Pirate player in this category. Pitcher Clay Holmes wore number 68 during his first taste of MLB action in 2018, but in 2019, he will rock number 52. Finally, there are players on the 40-man roster that were given numbers for the first time this offseason. This includes the Pirates, <clears throat> the players the Pirates added to the 40-man roster to protect them from the Rule 5 draft. Pitching prospect Dario Agrasol was given number 76, while Jesus Lorenzo will wear number 60. Pitcher JT Brubaker, infielder Cole Tucker, and outfielder Jason Martin were all added to the 40-man roster earlier this offseason to protect them from the Rule 5 draft. Brubaker was given number 65, Tucker number 3, and Martin number 53. Finally, there's Mitch Keller. Keller is the Pirates' top prospect and one of the top pitching prospects in all of baseball. When Keller makes his MLB debut this summer, he will wear number 23 for the Bucks. You know... I always find it interesting to see what numbers players choose and sort of the history regarding jersey numbers for the Pirates. And when it comes to the first guy that we mentioned, Eric Gonzalez, he will be wearing number two. Nobody has worn number two for the Pirates since Marlon Bird back in 2013. Uh, I do not know why. But the one interesting note here with Eric Gonzalez wearing number two, you guys know who else wears number two? That's Troy Tulowitzki, who we are uh, in the process of maybe bringing into Pittsburgh. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, Eric Gonzalez ever gets a chance to even wear the number two. As uh, If we bring Troy Tulowitzki, he will definitely have uh, seniority over the young Eric Gonzalez. Now, besides that, in number two in Pirates history, uh, we're going to just take a look at who's worn it, how successful they've been, and we're going to do that for the rest of the players. Because I think it's inter- interesting. You know, some, certain players, where certain numbers tend to do well, certain numbers have done poorly in the past, and it doesn't, you know, equate perfectly, but it is interesting to look at. So if you see at number two, there have been 36 players all-time in Pirates history who have worn that number. Now, 
Uh, most recently, we talked about Marlon Byrd in 2013. Prior to that was Brandon Inge in 2013, Brock Holt in 2012, Nate McLeod in 2012, Brandon Wood in 2011, Bobby Crosby in 2010, and the last player to really hold down the number was Jack Wilson between 2003 to 2009. So since 2009, uh, number two has not been held down pretty well. Um, so again, not much success when it comes to that number. But then we move, I believe, Lonnie Chisnall was next. He'll be wearing the number 17 for the Pirates in 2019. The last player to wear that was Austin Meadows in his brief uh, cameo appearance with the team before we traded him off to the Tampa Bay Rays for Chris Archer. Uh, I'd say he was pretty successful for the Pirates uh, wearing that number 17. Prior to that, I believe we had Matt Joyce. Uh, <clears throat> let me just pull up that number 17. And we'll see who uh, held that down for the longest uh, in Pirates history. Uh, Lonnie Chesnall could be a, a Austin Meadows type player, you know, filling in that fourth outfield spot, Matt Joyce type player. So number 17 has gone to a fourth outfielder in recent Pirates memory. There have been 49 players in our history to wear that number. <clears throat> um, obviously, we had most recently Austin Meadows. That was in the year of 2018. Phil Gosson in 2017. Matt Joyce in 16. Pedro Florimone in 2015, Aramis Ramirez in 2015, and the last player to really hold it down for more than New York's Gabby Sanchez. Remember him, 2013 to 14. So Gabby Sanchez was the last guy to hold down that number 17. Uh, Reminded of Lonnie just also Gabby Sanchez going with him. That that pop he provided at first base before uh, Josh Bell came up and you know took down the position along with John Jaso, but. <clears throat> Overall, we'll see how long just not does in that number. Um, not much success uh, history-wise. If you if we're looking back, Doc Ellis wore the number, uh, so he was pretty successful. Well, let's see if we have anybody else. Yeah, it was really just Doc Ellis was the most successful, I'd say, in number 17 uh, pitcher back in the 70s. Do you remember the infamous LSD story where he threw a no hitter? I believe he was high on LSD at the time when he threw the no hitter. But uh, that was Doc Ellis, and that was his personality. If we look at our next guy, we have Jordan Lyles. We rock him at number 31 in 2019. And in Pirates history, uh, there have only been 39 players to wear that number. Most recently, A.J. Shugel, Shuggy, 2016-17. to 17. Uh, And then guys like Mike Morris, Jose Tabata, 2010-15. to 15. Uh, Most successful wearing that number. Going back, Harvey Haddix. Wore that from 59 to 63. Um, yeah, I'd say Haddix was most successful. But Shuggy wearing that number from 16 to 17. Hurt all of 18. If you remember, he threw, I believe, three pitches in the February 23rd game against the Rays to open up spring training, and he got hurt. But, uh, yeah, Jordan Lyles, hopefully he won't be hurt like Shuggy was. Um, and then, yeah, Mike Morris, he also wore that number in 15, if you go back and remember him. And finally, we have Clay Holmes switching numbers. He'll be wearing number 52 in 2019, switching from 68. Last guy to wear that was Tanner Anderson. Then we had Jack Leathersitch, Jan Mariniez, Phil Koch, Curtis Parch. Last guy to hold that down was Rob Scahill from 15 to 16. And Hanrahan, yeah, 2009 to 12. I'd probably say he's the most successful in that number. Uh, yeah, but Tanner Anderson, Leathersitch, Mariniez, all fringe relief pitchers. Uh, hopefully Clay Holmes doesn't turn into that. Uh, not not a very prominent number since uh, Joel Hanrahan departed in 2012 via trade. 
But overall, again, it, it's just a fun thing to do. You know, not much news going on. Really, all we can do is speculate on the show. So when we get something like this, it's kind of interesting to look around, see how guys do. And again, uh, Dario Agassol will be wearing number 76. Jesus Lorenzo, number 60. Cole Tucker, number 3. Mitch Keller, 23. Jason Martin, number 53. And JT Brubaker, uh, I believe he's 60. Yeah, 60. So that's just about going to do it on our show this morning. I'd like to thank all of you for tuning in. Uh, my name is Benson Fexer. Again, couldn't have Jared on this morning. Hopefully we'll uh, get, it, get him on here next week uh, if he can get up one of these mornings. For more... Uh, Bucket Booth content, be sure to head over to the website, baseballpodcast.net. Make sure to give our host a follow on Instagram. Myself at BucksDogat and Jared at Pirates.Strong. Be sure to follow the Baseball Podcast Network on all the social media platforms. Instagram at BaseballPodcastNet. Twitter at BaseballPodcast1. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-1. YouTube at Baseball Podcast Network. And SoundCloud at Baseball Podcast Network. We only have one more episode. You and I, before the launch of the Baseball Podcast Network, 10 days away. So that is coming up. This is my last episode with you guys before Christmas, too. So Merry Christmas. Um, Not a Happy New Year yet, but that will be coming up next episode. Uh, enjoy the time with your family or if you're going out of town. Uh, thank you for taking this time on a Saturday morning to listen to me talk Pirates baseball. We will see you all here next Saturday. Have a good Christmas and a safe week, everybody.